There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Atcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. As a parent, do you worry that your child is spending too much time on their smartphone or other electronic devices? Are you concerned that they are more connected electronically than to you? Is this simply how it is developmentally? And are any concerns about the potential or actual negative impacts of too much screen time just mainstream media hype and fear-mongering? Our topic today is social media, youth and emotional well-being. And joining me to discuss this topic, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Brendan Belsham and Sarah Hoffman. Brendan is a subspecialist child and adolescent psychiatrist. He's in private practice here in Johannesburg and has been since 2000. He's the author of a book on ADHD, What's the Fuss About ADHD? And he has a very specific interest in social media and the impact of electronic screens on emotional well-being and mental health amongst the youth. Sarah is a social media lawyer expert on digital wellness, digital citizenship, and digital parenting, and she's the co-founder of Clicked, K-L-I-K-D, which provides accessible resources for parents, educators, teens, and tweens, and with the hope that social media can be used happily, safely, and responsibly. So before we dive in, just a few words to set the scene. I mean, the role that electronic and social media play in our lives has grown exponentially, um, upwards of about 3.8 billion users worldwide as of 2020. So it's become so integrated into the lives that many people live that life without such media seems unimaginable. So all, for all of the potential to, to, to connect and inform, that is obviously not the full story. So I posed a couple of questions up front, and they might be overly broad in what is likely to be a more nuanced issue, but I think they set the scene. For what I understand to be an issue with psycholegal implications, actually. So I'm going to start with Sarah. How would you define social media? Because, I mean, that's a very broad uh, uh, term. But how would you kind of look at it in terms of what it is and what the essential elements are supposed to be of, of social media? So I think it's it really we need to think about it as any communication that happens over the internet. Um, I think as that's probably the most generous and broad interpretation I can offer. Right. So if I, I mean, I'm I'm looking at uh, a more sort of um, I wouldn't say scientific, but a more specific definition which which speaks about mobile and web-based technology, and they speak about with the intention of creating highly interactive platforms via which individuals share, co-create, discuss, and modify user-generated content. So that sounds like such a, a wonderful thing. Absolutely. So the interactive component and the user-generated component is is there, and some of the more engaging platforms, of course, you know, have huge gamification and huge um, interactive components. But I think the piece that people often miss is that the minute something is put in digital content, in a digital format, yes. rather, it has the ability 
to generate that user feedback. So it might be as simple as an image that you share with one person, which is then sent onto a WhatsApp group, and that becomes a discussion around that. Or it might be a voice note you send to one person. We're seeing um, people, you know, something as simple as a Google Doc. It's really a, a productivity tool that a, any old professional yes. um, would use in a any not old anyone, anyone would use yes. in a day to day basis. I mean, we all use Google Docs, but kids, especially in lockdown, having chats and often inappropriate chats on on a platform as simple as a Google Doc because it has the ability to um, enable communication between other people. It's on the internet, and you know it can be as simple as that. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that. You put out a straightforward piece of information, but there's a snowballing effect Absolutely. in terms of who you share it with. And there's also, once it's out there, what happens to it, how it gets interpreted, how it's responded to, how you receive that response in terms of the feedback you get and everything that emanates from that. It's, as I said, this snowballing effect, which is really, once it's out there, it's outside of your control. Absolutely correct. And I think that this is something which obviously we'll get into in terms of, of the use of the word control. But here I'm speaking more about the individual putting something out there in what they assume is a fairly straightforward and innocent way. And the next thing, there's a, let's call it a shitstorm. Absolutely. Things happen. To put it mildly. <laughs> yes. And so I think that these are the kinds of issues which one sees. And these are the kinds of things that one encounters. And before you know it, you've got a very distorted perception of what social media is all about because the consequences of such an event can be quite catastrophic. And that's where I think I'm going to bring Brendan in because this whole issue of social media and, and, and mental health, obviously it's, it's a specific area that you're interested in and, and you focus on. Now, obviously there's a mainstream narrative, I think in general, which will tend to focus on the negative consequences and the problems, which is part of the story. Then you go into the scientific community, which is really researching risks and benefits, and it seems to be more nuanced, where there's no clear cut, it's all good or all bad. And I think as psychiatrists, we certainly tend to move away from all or nothing kind of reasoning. So mm. so I don't think it's a cut and dried issue. What are your thoughts, Brendan? Absolutely agree with that, Christopher. It's not a cut and dried issue. And we saw it acutely during the COVID pandemic, where Social media came to the rescue for many people right. and the internet in general. Right. And just in terms of peer connectivity, if you think about the adolescent age group, for example, whose whole raison d'etre is right. to be connected to their peers, they were suddenly taken away from them in, in one foul swoop and they needed a way to connect with their peers, to forge relationships, to maintain relationships, mm. to assuage loneliness. And, and that, that of course, brought it into sharp focus. But in general, I think it's important for us to think about the benefits of social media. Yeah. And if it's used wisely yeah. and with appropriate education, uh, and that education has to start with parents, which I'm sure we'll get into in yes. due course, um, it, it's a tool for good, as, as in so much else in our daily lives. And I think that's important because really what we're coming back to, and it seems like every podcast I use the word balance, but I think that's really health and balance are so you know uh, inexorably linked that you just cannot mention the one with, without mm -hmm. the other. But I want to now sort of drill down into some of the specific issues. And, and, and for me, the most obvious one is bullying. You know, bullying is like such a, major 
concern that, that one has. I mean, bullying is as old as the hills. But I think that uh, in the old school environment where you'd get pushed around on the playground, it was more direct and you could see exactly who your foe was and, and it would be dealt with. Now we're moving in a completely different milieu. So, so, so Sarah, you're, you're a lawyer. And, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What's your experience? So absolutely correct. I mean, bullying's always been around, but it's exacerbated a thousandfold in this digital age, you know, largely because it's much easier, you know, for reasons Brendan was touching on, to say things behind the comfort of a screen that you wouldn't necessarily say face-to-face. Um, it's also exacerbated because it's around the clock. Right. It's, it's, you know, kids are not getting bullied at school and having a, a reprieve at home. It's happening, and, and statistics show that actually the majority of cyberbullying happens at, um, in the bedroom at night when kids are bored. Mm. We actually call it a click the, the fatal foursome, bedroom, boredom, nighttime, and COVID, because that's when we saw some of the absolute worst, mm. worst, worst content. And the other reason is some of the platforms enable anon- anonymity. So, again, mm. you know, making saying horrific things much, much easier, you know, whether it's actually platforms that encourage you to to say things on, under an anonymous profile or you simply creating an anonymous profile. Right. These kind of mechanisms facilitate far worse content than, you know, you might say face-to-face to somebody. So tell me, I mean, are you able to be more specific in terms of which these platforms are? Because, I, you know, I know like these sort of obvious ones, Twitter, Instagram, Sure. So there, there's a whole suite of platforms that are actually designed to encourage anonymous communication. So Omegle, for example, their byline is talk to strangers. Wow. Their loads <laughs> is kick, there's Qumi, which is a, I say, unproudly South African product because it is created by a South African person. Um, there's Yik Yak, there's something called Sarara. There's always going to be new ones. But what we really need to understand and what I always say to parents um, when we speak to parents about managing their kids in social media, it's not necessarily about understanding every mechanic and every parental control, every Resetting. It's really understanding the basics and the principles and knowing how to have those tough conversations yeah. with your children before they happen, before things go down. So, I mean, this raises the question for me and, and obviously for parents to have red flags in terms of, aha, so those are the sites that are potentially problematic. That's the app that my child should not have on their phone. So, absolutely, that helps. Yeah. But, you know, bullying can happen in a, in a comment under a YouTube video. Bullying, mm. we're seeing the worst bullying in class WhatsApp groups. Right. Bullying can happen, as I said, on a simple Google Doc. So it's not, yes, there's some platforms that are more prone to it and encourage it more, but it's, it's, it's prolific. And it's really about what to look out for, the type of content to look out for. Yeah. It's about kids recognizing what is bad content, what makes me feel bad. Mm. And it's about kids and parents really at the nub of it all is having those conversations on an ongoing basis. So when mm. either you are the recipient of bullying or somebody else is being bullied, you know, kids speak to someone that they trust. And an, another big part of it is is that ability to be an upstander. When you're seeing somebody else being bullied, mm. right. go and tell somebody, put an end to it if you can. So before I bring Brendan in there, I mean, what it's sounding like to me is that we're looking at threat mitigation if we understand where the problematic apps might be, but that's not the final or full solution. Ultimately, what it is is about education Absolutely. in terms of recognition and also how to respond. Brendan? 
Mm, absolutely agree. And, you know, it starts for me before we even get into the digital space. It, right. it starts for me with the, the connection that a parent has with their child and maintaining that connection and being intentional about that connection from the very earliest years prior to the, 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 the sort of, I guess, the emergence of digital screens in their lives or hopefully so. <laughs> These days, children get onto screens really young, don't they? Which is a whole problem in itself. But what I mean is, if there's a good, strong connection between a parent and a child, then the issues of life, whichever they might be, including this one, uh, kind of get absorbed into the conversation mm. timelessly, and these threats can be, in many respects, averted and dealt with by virtue of the strength of that connection between the parent and child well i think what's important here is that we're sort of using social media as a vehicle but what we're ultimately coming to is what is the underlying foundational relationship that exists between a parent and a child that enables a child to go to a parent and Mm. say hey this is what's happening what do you think or for a parent to check in with a child and say what's going on here or what's happening there and so i think that parenting starts well for me parenting starts in the womb Sure. Actually, you know, it's, 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 it's critical. You don't start parenting when there's a problem. But often it's when there is a problem that you become aware of the parenting issues. And then you have to not so much undo but chart a different path forward as part of the solution. And I think that you as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and obviously I've got a background in adolescent psychiatry for many years at Tara. But, I mean, would you echo that or how would you see it? Brenda? I absolutely agreed. It does start in the womb and that's why the strength of that attachment bond between Mm. a child and their parent is so foundational in terms of dealing with the the issues of everyday life i mean i mean maybe we'll get into this but you know you can get into it right now there are different theories about how soon a child should have a smartphone right i think it's a very important question now now interestingly if you look at the pioneers of of tech, the likes of Steve Jobs and and the like, Mm. they were very conservative parents when it came to digital technology. I mean, Steve Jobs' kids only got cell phones when they were 14. Mm -hmm. Some of them sent their kids to Silicon Valley people, sent their kids to tech-free schools. Why? Because they know just how potentially addictive and dangerous the, the electronic world is for children. They selling it and making a profit out of it. Yes. But when it comes to their own children, they they're aware of of the risks. So there w- yeah, there was a Netflix documentary on Facebook, as I recall. Can't remember. Uh, Social dilemma. Social dilemma, and they were interviewing tech giants or people, and they were like, "My kids are not mm. on these platforms," and so that's a real ethical issue. Actually, you're promoting it, you're selling it, but then you are curtailing it in terms of your own children. But what about the rest? You know, so. Yeah, well, you could say the same for many industries. No, exactly. But but I think for us as parents, it's about maybe even going against the stream, going a bit counterculture. Yes. You know, know, we had a policy with my children where they could not get a cell phone until they were 13. Now, with my oldest child, that was kind of okay because she was a bit. Just pre-millennial Right <laughs> But then the other kids It became increasingly difficult To maintain that rule 
Because, for example, my youngest child, who's just turned 14, would say, well, I'm the only one in my class without a smartphone. Right. Right. So then you're asking yourself as a parent, what am I doing to this child's social life by excluding him from, you know, WhatsApp chat groups and, and so forth? So, you know, it's tricky. But I think if you're intentional as a parent in promoting healthy activities that don't have to do with screen time, yes. like extramurals and sports mm. and piano piano, and all the rest of it. Reading. Uh, reading, Books. 100%. <laughs> People do that. <laughs> well, they should do more of it. Yeah. You know? Then, then, then you, can, you can facilitate proper interactions anyway for that child, yeah. face-to-face interactions. But I think that what we are saying is that how you socialize starts – very young, so that if social media becomes a necessary component, it's slotted in in a specific way, and it's just seen for what it is, which is a useful adjunct to what I ordinarily do, which has got a a spectrum of other activities. So we're going, again, back to good old balance at the end of the day. So just in answer to your question about how old, Sarah, I mean, what does Clicked recommend, for example, without being dogmatic about it? If we got a rand for every time we were asked that question, (laughs) and it it is, I wish there was one age, one button we could click to make sure our children were safe online. But unfortunately, it's just so nuanced. And there is no right age. I mean, I think the age restriction on the majority of apps is 13. And in an ideal world, in a world where kids didn't need to be online to – have their lessons or be part of the class WhatsApp group, I would absolutely delay as as much as possible. But we also have to be real. And so it's really about fostering connection, putting healthy boundaries in place. And it's it's not something we can't expect our children, you know, knowing what we know about digital technology and the creators of technology and seeing things like the social dilemma. We cannot give our children a device and expect them not to mess up. We've got to – we – as parents don't have role models that grew up in this age. So no, now we're true. all having to hmm. recalibrate. And I, I love when I, I, we give a lot of presentations to schools and professionals, and I often start saying, when Steve Jobs got up on that stage, you know, he used to have these very theatrical um, introductions every time Apple launched a new product. Hmm. And when he introduced the first iPhone, he introduced it as an iPod that can make calls. Steve Jobs himself never imagined that we would be living in this world where this little tyrant in our pocket was something that controlled everything from our online payments, our banking, our grocery bills, our children's class, our children's learning. It's literally become a console for running our entire lives. And so where we are now, having kind of been immersed into this, not actually signing up for it, we have to take a step back mm. and recalibrate. But I am still diverging from your question which is the age the age so the age really i think it's when your child is ready and what does ready mean it's your child able to be responsible can they get up in the morning and make their own bed can they you know follow instructions are they able to still socialize at the dinner table are they able to respond to healthy boundaries can you sit and have a conversation about what can go wrong are they still um you know having all the other healthy components of their day that are required developmentally. Um, And, you know, I think it's also, it's got to be a graded approach. We don't Mm. give them a a device and say, you know, have fun, see you when you're 18. It's a slowly, slowly, you know, approach. You know, one of the, one of the guidelines we give parents, for example, is we recommend no more than three apps at any stage. Mm. um, Because we think it's more, it's too much for that developed brain to handle. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Things like when you join a WhatsApp group, 
for two weeks, perhaps just observe. Just observe. Don't say anything. Just observe. Is anything bad going down? Check in with your child. Unfortunately, as, and this is, I think, where parents really struggle um, because you, you kind of want that screen often to be the, the babysitter. We need time out. Uh, well, sometimes. you know, that, 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 that's a real issue. That's a real me, issue. Actually. But when it comes to social media, right. when our children are not just passive recipients of the content, when they're right. starting to be active participants, right. we can't just hand it over and we have to play a role. And that's where parents who are already stretched to the max are really having a hard time. Well, I think that just coming back to, to, to the conversation we've been having, I think values are very important so that in a sense your children are schooled in a value system where at some level they themselves have a critical view of social media. So it's not so much about me, the parent, imposing upon you. It's about conversations we've been having such that the child moving into adolescence actually has their own awareness of what the limits and the benefits are and how they should and shouldn't use it. And so for me that's a very important um, aspect of, of, of parenting, which is, but it requires time. And it requires conversation. And you can't outsource parenting to anyone. You have to be that person. And what is your value system? Brendan, mm. I mean, you work with families a lot. Mm. And, and that's why, again, it comes back to delaying the introduction of the digital world as late as possible because it allows the foundation right. of proper socialization and, and conscience, even if you like. Yes. To have developed and emerged so that when the social media comes into play and online, other online activities, there is a bit of an internal barometer that that child has developed that helps them. There's just a little red flag that yeah. goes off somewhere inside them when there's cyberbullying happening on a on a yeah. WhatsApp group, for example. So, a hundred percent agree. Yeah. It can't be autocratically imposed in a in a unidirectional way, yeah. we have to have empowered our children to be a little bit critical about what goes on, on yes. the, in the online world. And I think it's, this is a life skill because, you know, we're talking about social media, but actually it's a life skill. It is. It's about how you filter what's the incoming and how you make sense of it and how you decide how to position yourself and how to respond to it. So as much as we're talking about social media, we're really talking about life in general. So as I said earlier, I mean, social media is a very useful vehicle for exploring these kinds of uh, uh, approaches that I think are fundamental to emotional well-being. Because we're talking about social media, how it might impact on well-being. But let's talk about parenting as a basis for emotional well-being. And I think that that is something which this discussion kind of, kind of sparks. So moving on from, from bullying. Well, not moving on from it. What kind of bullying does one see? Cause we, cause we use the word bullying as a very sort of global term. But what do we actually mean? It's like, you know, these days everybody says, I'm depressed. What does that mean? Mm. You know, are you just having a bad day? Is it a bad moment? Do you meet the clinical diet? What does it mean? So when we talk about bullying, what does it mean? And in terms of what is bullying for me might not be bullying for you. It may just be, hey, the, you know, get out of my face. Not interested in what you've had mm. to say. And that's it. Now move on. So I think that resilience also comes into it. So, Sarah, in terms of bullying, what, 
what sort of examples or, or what sort of things are you seeing? Or well, you? what aren't we seeing? You're right. Okay. Um, is maybe a better place to start. But I, I think if I can just touch on your, your last comment about um, recognizing what actually is bullying. And before I talk about the specific kinds of bullying we're seeing happening through digital devices, I think one of the things we try and teach kids is to recognize the difference between mean, rude, and bullying behavior. Because sometimes people are just having a bad day. Mm -hmm. They say, you're ugly. you know. But I think what we try and teach kids is when it's repeated Mm. and directly targeted at you, Mm. then it becomes bullying. Um, But what are we seeing? Well, it takes many shapes, forms, and sizes. We are seeing um, you know, even from a very little age, we're seeing a lot in these WhatsApp groups with kids being excluded from groups. It's the repeated kicking off the WhatsApp group, adding back on, creating an exclusive WhatsApp group to invite everybody to sleep over and then not including one girl. Yeah. When you are 10, that is absolute torture. So, you know, it might not be that when we talk about cyberbullying, that's not really what comes to mind. But when you're 10, that is absolutely Mm. catastrophic, Mm, devastating. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of that happening in the younger grades. And then as the as kids get older, um, you know, it's sharing private content, you know, sexting is probably a podcast for a different day. Um, There's fat shaming, Mm. slut shaming, um, creating anonymous accounts, uh, you know, we're seeing Instagram accounts created where people rate people fat or not, hot or not, thin yeah. or not. I mean, we're seeing all kinds of horrific things. Um, so it's really very, very difficult. I mean, you have to have a strong sense of self yeah. to be able to withstand a lot of the incoming that is so pejorative and uh, almost hateful in yeah. a way. And it's, what's fascinating is, is also watching how it plays out slightly differently with girls and boys. And I'm sure, Brendan, you, you can weigh in here as mm. well. But, you know, with girls, it's a lot around secretism, exclusiveness, kicking on, off a group and on a group. And with boys, it's more like, you're so gay, you're so fat, you're such a beep, 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 insert right. expletives here. Mm. Um, um, and it really, we, we're seeing a lot of that, as I said, in the WhatsApp groups and then, you know, in, in all sorts of, um, shapes and forms online, right. anything from extortion. Oh, yes. Um, of course, to, extortion. So, I mean, what we're really talking about is rejection. You know, that's one of the big issues is that they don't like me. I came across a quote. I have to just put it in here. I don't know. I mean, I wrote it. Um, And it it may feel a little bit touchy-feely, but I I think it actually speaks to the point that you make where it said, confidence is not they will like me. Confidence is I'll be fine if they don't. And I thought to myself, hmm, I'll note that because I think it may have relevance somewhere along the line. Brendan, your thoughts Mm. on self-esteem and having self-esteem and how that enables you to withstand. Yeah. Well, you see, I'm going to come at that question slightly differently in the sense that There's quite a lot of evidence in the literature that those with mental illness, including adolescents, such as depression, for example, are more likely to be cyberbullied, for example, and more likely to have negative outcomes from cyberbullying. And and that then begs the question about resilience. Yes. To say, you know, for example, we know that in in individuals with depression, there's this negative attributional bias where they tend to see 
fairly neutral cues, and this is even in face-to-face interactions, yes. they, they, they interpret them more negatively. Um, rejection sensitivity is a yes. known psychological trait in those with depression. So the question is, are they more impacted by cyberbullying because they, they, they set up in such a way as to be more vulnerable? Or are they somehow being more targeted than than those without mental illness? Or are they actually on social media more as a substitute for loneliness in in the face-to-face arena? There are lots of different theories about why that might be. But it does speak to the question of resilience and and healthy self-esteem that kind of needs to be there at baseline to withstand the, the pressure, even as adults. I mean, we, we can sometimes interpret a WhatsApp message incorrectly because we don't have uh, the context of right. facial expression, tone of voice. In which case you would then send back a message that says, please clarify. Exactly. With know. an emoji. With an emoji, yes, <laughs> question mark, or <laughs> that, that face yeah. with the, the hand. Or if yeah. you don't respond to a message or someone doesn't respond to yours, what do you think in that moment? Do you assume the worst? Oh, they, they, they hate me. Right. I've obviously the offended them. I wonder what I've done. Correct. Or do you just come up with a slightly maybe more rational explanation? Maybe they're having dinner. They're busy. <laughs> exactly. They're busy. Yeah. Or they didn't feel the need to respond because mm. it was maybe self-explanatory. But I think just to your point, I mean, it, it should be noted again from the literature that 97% of folk with mental illness use social media. So certainly as psychiatrists, we have to be very conscious of the fact that our patients are actively engaged in using social media to share experiences, seek information, sometimes to look for support, support. So we'll come to that because I have a specific set of questions that I really wanted to address in terms of those who suffer from mental illness using social media. But just coming back to some of the, the issues, we've spoken about bullying, but I want to speak about posting. The stuff that you put out there and what the risks are and how you make yourself vulnerable. And, of course, we get into this issue of photographs. I mean, I look at certain profiles that I come across and I think, wow, you know, what are you doing? What message are you trying to send? What is going on with you? And that's just in a profile. Never mind what they might send out otherwise. And so I'm always very sensitive around that. So... You know, what is your experience of what patients, Brendan, and what people in general, Sarah, are actually doing in terms of their posting? And, you know, what are the consequences? Oh, so much to say. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, it goes without saying we live in this culture where if it didn't happen, if it's not on social media, it didn't happen. Right. Um, and, you know, it, that's not particular to kids. We all are guilty of that. I took a picture of us right now in this very studio. Yes, so we've captured it. We've got it. And it did happen. And it's going to be on social media. But um, I think that, again, this is actually, I come back to, you know, this happened to us and now we have to recalibrate. And it right. is a life skill. This is being a responsible Digital citizen is a life skill we have to teach our children now. And so, you know, I think we also, what we try, what, what's so important to get people to recognize is what are they trying, what are they hoping for in posting something? Is it that, what are they getting? Is it that affirmation? Is it lots of likes? Is it, you know, you are, everything we put out there, we're putting, 
you know, no, there is an exchange of sorts. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and we have to really start to think about our, our broader digital footprints. You know, every single thing we post, share, like, even our tagged in is all forming part of this big puzzle of who we are online. And, you know, it's, we, we've heard stories, story upon story of how from a reputational perspective, mm. what we do in one context, what we might do on a weekend when we're with our friends having a glass of wine, nothing to do with our jobs or maybe nothing to do with our kids' schools can in all the dots can be connected in the digital age. So we really have to, once something is on social media, we have to consider a much, much wider audience than, right. you know, what we originally intended. So now the things we're talking about now, the things you're talking about, I mean, that's a fairly mature uh, approach, but we're not talking about individuals who are necessarily fully matured. So the question for me is, what is, the question is, what is responsible posting? You know, and I think there we're talking about Exactly what you're saying. What am I trying to convey? Also, how might it be received and how might it be responded to and how am I going to deal with that? So we're talking like steps and steps and steps ahead, which is, you know, rationally what you'd say, geez, before I put this out there, let me go through the process. Now, I don't know how many people really do that. And certainly when we're talking about our own patients, Brendan, I'm not sure that that's necessarily what happens. What are your thoughts on on responsible posting? Yes, I mean, we're dealing with an age group, in, in, in certainly an adolescent age group, whose brains are not fully mature, right. whose frontal lobes are not properly myelinated, and are thus more impulsive developmentally compared to older individuals. And then on top of that, we're dealing with several conditions in which impulsivity is a major theme. Right. So they, they tend to do and say things without thinking anyway. Right. I, I love the little advice that we got in, in Emma Sadler's book, where, which advice to children or, or youngsters say, if what I'm about to send or post, I'll be comfortable to see on a great billboard 500 meters from my house where everyone, including my granny, can see it, then great, go ahead and press send. Right. But if not, sleep on it, think about it, and probably don't send it. And maybe consult with your parents. Yes. You know, I think that is much... How many children are going to do that, though? (laughs) I know. But the the fact of the matter is, I think that, you know, parents should be there as a repository of wisdom. And, you know, I'm going to take... What Emma says one step further, because she said she says not only don't post it, but don't let it exist in digital format ah, whatsoever, yes. because Correct. phones get hacked. And what we're right. seeing now, hacking is one thing; right. screenshots are another. Mm-hmm. So it's not just what you post; it could be what you send to one person, right. what you, or, what, um, or it's what you've got on your phone, what you have in your phone gallery, right. and over and above that, what is also happening a lot now is the screen recording. So a lot of kids. What is that? Well, you know, when you, a lot of phones have an inbuilt screen recorder. So if you want to, for example, um, record to someone how to, um, download a certain product right. on your phone or okay. how to follow a few, a few steps, you can actually, there's, most phones have a recording inbuilt right. on the screen. You can actually record what your screen is showing. Okay. So a lot of kids, when we talk to kids about sexting, they say, okay, I'm not going to send, I'm not going to send any photo, but what if we on video call? And the problem there is that screen recorder. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that okay. these, this content can be recorded. And so it's, it's really not even the question is what about 
you know, we need to think about, we post and we absolutely do. And that billboard test is brilliant because we need to imagine that content being on the biggest billboard on the biggest highway. Um, we also talk about the grandma test. If you wouldn't show it to your grand and yes. um, you speak to younger kids, don't post it. Um, but it's, it's actually, you can't even let it exist in digital mm. format think, whatsoever. I think that's the scary part is that you might think that what you're doing is completely risk free. But you're not necessarily fully conscious of just how much risk there is simply by having it on your phone, never mind sending it. So, I mean, that that for me is, is, is important, Brendan, in terms of would you want to share it with the world before on a billboard with your gran? I think those are, are, are important considerations. But I still come back to I wonder what dad would say or mom would say. What do you think about this? This is what I'm thinking. This is the conversation that's happening. Mm. And so we come back to something fundamental, which is the parent-child relationship, the ability to actually share in a way that won't be viewed uh, negatively but will be embraced to say, okay, well, that's good that my child is sharing. I might be a little bit shocked uh, to hear what they might be thinking, but that's okay. It's an opportunity to have a discussion, to have a learning experience, and to take a balanced view about, What's appropriate, what's not appropriate mm. So I think the whole issue of posting And of course there are legal consequences In terms of, of, of what you post Because even reposting other people's posts You are now responsible Is that is Absolutely that, correct yeah. You could be seen to be in the chain of publication Right um, So I think that's very important You can't just repost it And think that you are now scot-free Because you didn't generate yeah. it You've been a medium and you've actively participated. And one thing just to add on that, so sometimes people share other people's posts, which might be bad, to create awareness, right? So somebody posts a racist post and you want to say, you know, hey, this is terrible. Right. But we need to be very careful in those moments that the reason for sharing is made clear. Right. So simply sharing could look like you actually promoting endorsing. or endorsing a view. Right. So, um, you know, we've got to be super clear, even use things like emojis to, or thumbs down if it's something you don't mm. agree. Sure. I want to get into the issue of comparison because I think there are a lot of unrealistic standards which are not necessarily real that go out there. And I think that has often tremendous impact. And I work with young women with eating disorders. And so this has huge impact in terms of how they feel about themselves and what they feel compelled to be in order to be okay. And we come back to the issue of self-esteem. So, Brendan, maybe you can just touch on or follow on just thinking about this idea of, of, of comparison and realistic standards of who I am mm. versus who they are. Mm. And, and especially pertinent, again, in this adolescent age group where how you're viewed by your peers is is of paramount importance it's more important than what your parents think of you it's more important than what your teacher thinks of you and so presenting a version of yourself to the world that is acceptable and liked becomes so so important and it's one of the main theories as to why excessive time on social media and visiting excessive number of social media sites Mm is associated with poorer outcomes in terms of mental health, is the so-called social comparison pressure, where you see sanitized, idealized versions of everyone around you because that's what people do. They put their best selves, the best version of themselves out there on social media, and you think of yourself in those terms and you you struggle to match up. So what, what I find interesting about this 
is that this is not new. We're talking about it in the context of social media. But, you know, there was a time when I would give lectures at schools and schools would say, well, come and talk to our girls about eating disorders. And I would say, well, who am I talking to? The folk who've got it don't believe they have it. Those who don't are saying, what the hell's this got to do with me? So I'm thinking, who, who am I talking to? Yeah. I need to speak to the parents who will be the ones who identify and may bring for care on the one hand. But then I thought, okay, let me look at one of the, I wouldn't say the only driver or the major driver, but a significant driver, which was the media in those days. Idealized representations of beauty. So I went into the schools and I would start to talk about media literacy. How do you interpret images that you see and how do you differentiate yourself from that which is shown, which you know is probably idealized, but that's not necessarily you or who you have to be. And so I think that's what we're really talking about is media literacy in a sense. Mm. Sarah? Mm. Yes. I think I would take it even one step further. And I think really what it, what so much of healthy social media use comes down to is strong emotional intelligence. Uh-huh. Because, you know, even as adults, we would feel the negative impact of comparing ourselves to others. I can go into LinkedIn and see somebody who's just been promoted and who's just, you know, written a New York Times bestseller and think, oh, why haven't I done that? You know, that's probably <laughs> <Yet>. the equivalent. <laughs> that's probably the equivalent, you know, yeah. obviously without the absolute rapid brain development and attachment that's going on in the adolescent years. But, um, I think what what's so important in these in this in these teen years is really instilling a sense of recognizing at which point the scrolling through Instagram is actually not enjoyable anymore and gives you that negative feeling mm. in your stomach and giving yourself mm. the ability to stop and actually step away even right. though it's not designed to easily step away. Mm. No, so you're fighting against algorithms that are designed to keep you coming back for more and more and more and more and more. Yep. So, so, so for me, really, that self-awareness um, is pivotal there. But what you're talking about, what you're talking about, actually, is gut instinct. Yep. It's like, hang on a sec, I don't like what I'm feeling. Mm. And I think for me, that's a red flag. Mm. As soon as you don't like what you're feeling, what are you going to do with it? Mm. Brendan, what would you say? Agreed. And it's about teaching our children from a young age to be attuned to to whatever word we use for it, a yucky feeling or whatever language might be appropriate at a particular developmental stage and to help people uh, develop, I guess, a, a sensitivity to those inner feelings in any domain of life. Absolutely. You know, if someone touches you in a certain way, that's, sure. that's a yucky feeling. Yeah. You know. And if I may just yeah. jump in there, I yeah. think, you know, again and again, it's for parents when it comes to social media, it's impossible. You can't kind of have a parallel screen of every single th- – well, you can if you really want to, but <laughs> you can't really monitor right. every single text and every single word. No. Um, but it's about that constant check-in right. um, because I think, you know, often our teens don't have the words to say – that didn't make me feel great, yeah. you know, especially the males. They have very few words mm. when they're in adolescent years. And, you know, it's about that, that consistent but gentle and non, sorry, consistent but non-judgmental and curious sure. checking in yep. yes. um, from parents about their online world. But not feeling good doesn't necessarily mean um, I felt sad or I felt troubled. It can also mean 
I felt angry. Mm-hmm. I saw that and I thought, mm, I don't like this. Mm. Fine. That's, to me, that's another. So I think we have to look at the, um, not so much definition, but the spectrum of feelings that might be associated with, I don't know if this is okay. Yeah. But, but if I can also yeah. add, I think, especially from a parenting perspective, but maybe also for us as adults, we have to create some hard breaks, some rules around Absolutely. how we consume the internet in general. And that's where I think as a parent we need to have, for example, meal times. We all meet around the table. We put our devices away, including the parents. Because sometimes you just need a bit of distance from yep. the activity to reflect a little bit on it and to say, you know what, that wasn't great. But in the moment, you, you maybe didn't, couldn't quite see the wood for the trees. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think we have to remember, as I said, these devices are designed to keep us hooked right. all the time. Um, and so without, even as adults, um, without putting some hard breaks, some intentional boundaries in place, um, the default is we're always going to be on it. So we always say to parents at the very least, no phones in the bedroom. Ideally, ideally, if mm-hmm. you can, if you can avoid mm-hmm. it for mm-hmm. for children. I mean, ideally, we as adults we shouldn't sleep with the devices next to our bed either. But um, no phones in the bedroom. That device has to have its own bedtime. Yep. Um, no, for you know, it's, it's, it comes down to family um, family values. But meal times is a very popular one. Absolutely. We actually on our website have a um, social media contract that parents can sign with their children around what your own home values are, when it can be used, how it's going to be used, what content you will or will not post. Right. Um, and also the parents to be accountable too. I won't post embarrassing photos of you, et cetera, et cetera. But I think absolutely what Brendan said, we, we can't expect our children to just use these devices responsibly when they designed for the opposite. Well, I think that this brings into question the whole issue of control. Who controls? Parents? So I want to touch on state. The Chinese model where, you know, TikTok is a Chinese creation, but it's not available in China, is my understanding. There's a Chinese version called Du Yin, and there's a a setting if you're under 14, and it switches off literally at 10 o'clock until 6 o'clock in the morning, and it contains mainly educational material. So now here we have the state stepping in and acting as the parent, which I find problematic personally, because I think that once you... Remove parental responsibility, you start to undermine one of the foundations of family, and I would have a concern that the state becomes the parent. I like the parent. So this is about parent empowerment, and I think that's part of the negotiation and part of the value system in terms of usage, because that was one of the issues that I wanted to raise. Duration of use, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, and to throw us not so much a spanner in the works, but to, to, to understand that so much as a consequence of COVID, but outside of that, online learning takes place. So now how do you start to differentiate between what's sufficient, what's insufficient, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate? Where do you draw the line? And is there a firm line that you can draw, or is it more about the individual? Mm. So so um, initially, the yes. people who, the first people to do the research on acceptable screen times who provided very rigid guidelines as to how much screen time for each age was the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they had very rigid guidelines from naught to 18 months, absolutely zero screen time, 18 months to two years, nothing except family FaceTime and so on. They'd go through the ages. And that research has actually been turned upside down. Right. And what, what, 
we now are focusing on more than specific rigid guidelines is what we call the displacement effect. Uh-huh. What is the screen displacing? And if the screen is displacing important developmental things that are important for your growth as a child, as a teenager, time outside, face-to-face interaction, sport, homework, family time, once a screen starts displacing that, it's too much time. So a lovely exercise we say when parents say, what's the right amount of screen time, is think of your day you know, as a jar of marbles and put all those marbles in. And if you've put everything in that includes your, your um, homework, your friends, your sport, if there's still some space for screen time, absolutely. But it's got to... It can't displace other core components of the day. And layered on top of that, we also have to remember what you're saying, is that no, not all screens are equal. Mm-hmm. So we can't just give a blanket five-hour guideline because there's a very big difference between one hour of four, on fortnight where the do- dopamine is at an all-time high and you are you know, aggressive and then mommy says, come for dinner and, you know, all, is all Fortnite help. Uh, one it's of a video. It's an online, online game. Online you, games. Just coming back game. to the Chinese, one hour a day. They are very specific. They call it spiritual opium. They don't like online games. So they are very, very specific about uh, the use of video screens, Mm. not more than one hour a day. Mm. And in fact, uh, on school days, zero. That one hour a day is on weekends. So just getting back to the issue of Fortnite and how the Chinese operate. So yes, I mean, not all screen time is the same. Sorry, but I interrupted. You were... Yeah. No, that's absolutely fine. Um, but I think an interesting, as a, you know, just to carry on what I was saying about not all screen time is equal. Mm. Um, that's why even the American Academy of Pediatrics say that FaceTime, even for very little ones, actually from 18 months is actually okay because right. developmentally that human component interaction, that need is being met in some way. Mm. But, you know, an hour and fortnight is not the same as an hour um, in a more interactive yes. video call, or perhaps it's in a, you know an interactive yes. game with less aggressive game with right. your friends, or maybe you watching educational content. So it's it's about what you're watching and what is being displaced by the screen, which I think is a very important concept, and it comes back again to balance, of course. But something that you touched on earlier, Brendan, which was the number of platforms, mm. because the more or the greater number of platforms you're accessing, mm. the greater the association I've understood between mm. depressive and anxiety symptoms as much as the extent of, of, of usage in terms of mm. hours. Do you mm. want to comment on that? That's yeah, interesting. Uh, this is one study that I looked at, but there are actually three aspects to it. It's the total quantum of hours spent on social media. It's the number of different social media sites that you look at. Right. And... It's how many times you actually go on them in the course of a day. So all three of those variables seem to be associated with a greater degree of of, uh, psychological symptoms, be it depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and and different theories as to why that might be, the social comparison pressure, as we spoke about earlier. But also I love that term, the displacement effect, Mm. what I would have thought of as the opportunity cost of being on – on social media right. or online, what you're missing out on, especially yes. in younger, in younger children, whether that's healthy exercise, face-to-face interaction, reading. Yes, um, reading. Good old reading. Fresh air. <laughs> Physical exercise, team sport. 
You know, these are all critical components of normal youth development. But there's there's an issue that I wanted to 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 raise, Brendan, specifically in terms of the scientific literature. And I think for the audience, it's important to understand that a lot of these studies that make the associations are what we call cross-sectional studies versus longitudinal. Do you want to just comment on that? Absolutely right. I mean, it's actually a difficult area to study, really. Yes. But it's true. The, the vast majority of the studies are cross-sectional rather than longitudinal. So if we look at a cohort of teenagers and we see that they are more likely to have social anxiety if they've been on uh, so many sites of social media, how do we tease out causality from that? You know, mm-hmm. That's just an association. It's, yes. you know, is, is it that they're actually on social media because they're socially anxious and they resisting face-to-face social interaction? Or is it the other way around? And I think that does require longitudinal studies. There are one or two longitudinal studies that, that, that are out there yes. in the literature that do support the association between, for example, cyberbullying. Right. I think one study I looked at looked at kids over a two-year period of time. Okay. And, and even at the end point of the study, there, was, there, does, there did seem to be a causal association between exposure to cyberbullying and the development of, of severe uh, depressive symptom, symptomatology further on down the study. So, but as it stands, the majority of the studies are cross-sectional, cross-sectional, which makes it difficult to infer causality. But I want to touch on a concept that you and I spoke about offline, because in, in, in some sense this is, this is part of it, how one gets sucked in. And you spoke about digital phenotyping. Do you want to just comment on that a little bit more? Because I find it fascinating but also scary. Mm. Now, so, so digital phenotyping is an emerging field in, in, in social media whereby companies can gather vast amounts of data, vast amounts of information from their users. And, I mean, it's quite scary. Many of these social media companies... Uh, you know, have access to all, all kinds of information without getting the user's permission. Anyway, they can look at this data. They can use complicated algorithms to really develop pattern recognition. So, for example, Twitter can look at conversations and look at the content of those conversations and start to make predictions around the mental health of the person who's using certain words, putting certain phrases together. And and that has potential uses in terms of early recognition of mental illness for the individual user or even potentially in, in research on a broader scale. But, of course, there are risks, <laughs> risks in terms of confidentiality of yes. that sensitive information. Of course, it's being used anyway in other medical fields. We know, for example, in cardiology, there's very clever ways for cardiologists to remotely know if a patient's pulse is changing. Or having arrhythmias. Having arrhythmias. So that's, of course, we, we, we see that in a positive light. Yes. But I guess there's something about mental health and mental illness that is a little bit more Concerning. Well, I think we're very sensitive to the issue of control. And I suppose that this is what we're really talking about, the algorithm, and when we talk about movies like The Matrix, etc., etc., which were probably way in advance of their time, but are maybe more relevant today mm. than, than ever, where we are living in different realities. And the concern for me is where social media becomes your reality. 
as opposed to the real world. Mm. And so that's a real issue for me because I think that sometimes there's so much consumption. How do you start to distinguish between what you're getting sucked into versus how your real life actually is? So I don't know, Sarah, if that's part of what clicked. Well, first I want to say that the metaverse did not exactly help that problem at all. I'd forgotten about that. Soon we're going to be doing podcasts in the metaverse and having business meetings in the metaverse and... The differentiation is going to be even harder But um, Yes That is such a nuanced question Because I think you know on the one hand As parents we have to understand that For our children Especially our tweens and our teens There's no such thing as online and offline It's all the lens through which they see It's the lens through which they socialize It's the lens through which they see the world And so you know I think we, we often ask kids, what is the most irritating things you, you, your parents say to you about social media? And, you know, it's always, why do you have to be online so much? Why are you online? Why can't you socialize in real life? That is their life. But, you know, I think as parents, we do have to, unfortunately, have an active role to play. Yeah. And, and, and we're fighting against these algorithms that are not helping us at all. Mm. Um, but we do have to... Have these in-person connections, constantly check in, encourage offline activity, yes. put limits in place. Um, and if there's time, we can talk about some practical steps as to how we do that. Well, we are running out of time. And unfortunately, there are always things more to be said. But I think that what you've said is very important in terms of setting the limits mm. and looking at the balance between online and offline and how we ground ourselves in the reality of the Experience versus the virtual experience, which I think is important. Brendan, any closing words from from mm. you? Yeah, I, I, for me, the digital space, including social media, is is really just another example of how we need to consume something that's inherently helpful and valuable, but with moderation and with balance, yeah. so that it doesn't take over our lives and it doesn't have negative consequences for those with or without mental illness and it again speaks to the importance of just intentional parenting especially from an early age and as parents we need to be prepared to be adversarial i mean i guess no more so than in and in in this digital space but it's been for eons past parents have always fought with their children (laughs) but out of out of a well-meaning intention. Listen, I think that parents are not perfect individuals, but I don't think, or I would say that very rarely, if ever, have I come across a parent who intentionally wanted to harm their child. And so I think that there's a fundamental instinct Mm. there. But it's interesting for me is that what we come down to are fundamental principles of what it means to be a good parent or an adequate parent. It's about parenting, Mm. which for me is, is, is very important. So Brendan, Sarah, I want to thank you for joining us and, and, and giving of your time and sharing of your knowledge and expertise. Greatly appreciated. So what I would say in closing is that you know social media is a double-edged sword. There are pros, there are cons. The pace of technology and the rapidity of uptake and use means we're experiencing real-time effects, both positive and negative, that require an adaptive capacity that is unprecedented. It seems that as with most things, maybe everything, balance is key to finding an equilibrium 
But where is that balance? So I'm going to end with a couple of quotes. I didn't fact check them. I took them straight from Google. So you can uh, (laughs) fact check them if you want. But according to Elon Musk, he says, I think that there should be regulations on social media to the degree that it negatively affects the public good. Well, that's part of the discussion we've been having, to which I've added one from Bill Gates who said, if you can't make it good, at least make it look good. Anyway, make of those what you will. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.